Welcome to No Cure for Curiosity, a podcast to encourage and promote curiosity in the liberal arts. I am Shani Luft, a professor of religious studies and the associate dean of general education at the University of Wisconsin at Stevens Point. Today's episode is about the Chinese artist Tsai Guoqiang, who is world famous for his pyrotechnic art pieces. My guests are Courtney Chaffin and Ellen Larson. They both recommended a documentary on Netflix called Sky Ladder, The Art of Tsai Guoqiang which documents the artist's mesmerizing fireworks displays and his 20-year effort to create Skyladder, which is this image he carried for a firework display that was designed like a ladder that climbs hundreds of feet into the sky. You don't have to watch Skyladder before listening to this episode, but I hope our conversation today will inspire you to check it out. In the podcast, we talk about the line between art and propaganda, the value of experiencing art live versus watching it on a screen or printed in a book, and the dozens of technicians and staff that are required to produce these massive firework displays that we talk about. We'll introduce Ellen Larson during the conversation that starts in just a moment, but my first question was to Courtney Chaffin. She's a professor of Asian art history at UWSP, and her research interests focus on the materiality of death in ancient China and the rich array of fantastic hybrid animal imagery in early Chinese funerary art. My first question to Courtney was how she became interested in the topic of death and funerals in art. Honestly, I think this goes way back to my childhood. I can remember the first time I learned that we die. And I don't think that, you know, it, was, it wasn't like a topic anyone talked about. And then my great grandmother died and I was in first grade and my parents, you know, picked me up from school and said, we're going to Louisville. Your great grandmother has died. And I, and I said, what do you mean she's died? Well, what does that mean? And it kind of was, I don't know, very traumatic for me. And I think ever since then, it was just like, I was trying to figure out, well, well, why do we die? And how, you know, I think wanting to study death and funerals is sort of my own way of figuring out how to cope with mortality. That's really fascinating. Thanks for sharing that. My other guest today is Ellen Larson. Ellen, uh, you are a curator, designer, and writer, as well as a PhD candidate at the University of Pittsburgh. Your dissertation project investigates domestic temporalities within the history of, con of contemporary moving image art from China. Ellen curates and presents ex uh, exhibitions, educational symposia, and other art events in China and the United States. Welcome, Ellen. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. So, Ellen, uh, can you explain what domestic temporalities are? Sure. So, my current disser dissertation project is looking at various regions of China, particularly the south, the south uh, west region and uh, northern regions of China. And I'm looking at uh, specifically how these contemporary social conditions, social change, urban transformation, as well as uh, regional histories and culture, how they inform ways in which artists uh, think about and respond to time, um, and more broadly speaking, how um, people in general respond to time living in, in these uh, various parts of China. That's fantastic. Well, the reason I invited you both here is because you both have a podcast, uh, and I want to talk about that a little later. But our main focus now is going to be on this documentary that we all saw. Because Courtney and Ellen, you're experts in Chinese art and culture. Courtney, you recommended this documentary called Skyladder, the Art of Hai Guo Cheng. How close was I? 
呃，蔡国强。蔡。蔡。蔡。Say it again. 蔡。Yeah, 蔡。蔡 ，and then 国。国。国。国。国。国。蔡国。强。强。强。Yep. All right, that's as close as I'm going to get. <laughs> that was pretty good. Yeah. So, Shani, I really want to ask you. So, you know, when I show this documentary in my general education classes because it's it's one of my favorites, and Tsai Guoqiang is one of my favorite contemporary artists. But I'm always really interested to find out, you know, what is the reaction of someone who maybe doesn't keep up with contemporary Chinese art? What did you think about the documentary? How did it move you? You know, what really stood out to you? Thanks for that question. His、uh, firework displays—I actually didn't know fireworks could do the things he was doing. So part of it was I was fascinated just technically. How do you make fireworks look like flowers with stems and and the kinds of colors he was using and the、um, the way that he was kind of painting in the air? I had never seen anything like it. It was really remarkable. I was also fascinated with his story. So the two things I was really interested in talking to you about. Is one this art form, right? That I, as far as I mean, he's the only person I've ever seen do anything like this before, and his interest in in fireworks, and he uses them in ways that I found unimaginably creative and interesting. To do a, a firework display like he's doing, which I'm imagining costs hundreds of thousands of dollars, these are like incredibly fancy, expensive, complicated projects.、Um, you have to get. Permits, and you have to have teams of people working together. He's not like a singular artist who's tying together fireworks himself and lighting them sort of in his backyard. He is more like the director of a movie, where there are、um, teams of people he works with and computer consultants.、Um, he's working in different countries, so he's working with different governments. So there's lawyers and and politics and paperwork, just like how complicated this process is. I found really interesting. Yeah, and I I think that's one of the really interesting things about artistic practice. If we're not involved in the day to day workings of a studio, right? We sort of think that、um, artworks that we see in an exhibition or online they're sort of the result of like this creative genius of this one artist, this one individual. But of course,、mm-hmm. that's not the case, right? Like what you're what you're talking about is. Um, you know, these studios employ lots of different people, and you know, in China, it's everything from from somebody doing translation work, doing interview work,、um, you know, like sort of filing administrative stuff, and then others who you know are working on photography,、um, and then you know, studios are also contracting out and hiring laborers.、Um, even you know, the artist, the, the very famous artist Ai Weiwei. Um, his sculptural works are created by sculptors, like very、um, respected sculptors,、mm-hmm. rather you know than the artist him sitting out in his studio, just sort of like slaving away at at his at his own work. But I think that it's also important for us to remember that like this is not new, right? Even within the context of Euro American artistic practice, you know, like if we think about. Um, mm-hmm. Michelangelo, you know, Michelangelo had a studio.、Uh, da Vinci had a studio, and so in in many of these instances, you know, an apprentice would be painting the entire body of the figure, and then the master, you know, Michelangelo or、uh, Rembrandt or Da Vinci would come in and then. 
you know, finish the face. So I think that it's interesting and also important to remember that the the creation of these works, it is such uh, an effort of collaboration, which I think the documentary does a really fantastic job of uh, revealing for us, as you're pointing out. Right. Even though I was so touched by his personal story, it also made me reflect on the fact that the final product that you look at was actually hundreds of people's work, um, but only one person gets acknowledged or credited or is seen as the visionary. Um, even the, the documentary kind of alludes to or gestures to or, or kind of um, you spend a little bit of time with uh, getting a sense of just how many people it takes to do this. Are those other people part of the art or are is there a difference between kind of the artist and the people who are doing the technical part of it? I don't know. Does that is that something that art historians or scholars think about? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's it's kind of all of the above. I think that, you know, it's of of course as teachers, as educators, or as 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 scholars, as thinkers, you know, we're thinking about the the context in which this work is being made, the relationship between the artist and the artist's environment. In addition, I think that it's it's also perhaps important to acknowledge that these artists, you know, they're working with laborers, with technicians, with fireworks manufacturers, but within those particular contexts, they're helping contribute to a project, you know, but like they're not artists, right? So the artist is relying on their labor, compensating mm-hmm. them for their labor. You know, it's not like the artist studio is taking advantage of, of these workers. So they are contributing to the project within their own right. I feel like labor is an important mm-hmm. thing for us to talk about. And labor, of course, is a part of the project. But when I watched the documentary and uh, Tai was in, you know, on the rooftop with the fireworks maker in Luoyang, you know, like I didn't see the fireworks maker as an artist collaborator. I saw the fireworks maker as contributing you know, his thinking, his technology. And again, they're both, they were on the roof, they were drawing out ideas, they were collaborating. But Tai, you know, he mm-hmm. has, is the one with the vision. And so he's able to effectively collaborate with other individuals and work together to produce what he's ultimately trying to achieve. Okay. That's really helpful. Courtney, you mentioned you show this documentary to your students. Mm-hmm. How do they respond to it? What do they think of it? Um, in a similar way to how you responded, they also noticed right away that, you know, uh, Tsai Guochang is working with a team and um, they do ask questions about that. So, you know, it's similar to you. So does this mean that, you know, he's truly the artist behind this work? Um, you know, so I'm, what I try to do is help them understand that, you know, Tsai Guochang, he has the concept, right? He's the one who comes up with the concept for the work of art and then brings in, you know, all of these collaborators to help him execute and, you know, make this um, come into fruition. Another thing that documentary brings up is um, the politics of China. Um, it gets into a little bit what his childhood was like and the um, 
the rise of um, Mao and uh, the difficult childhood that he had, and then also his continual work with the Chinese government. So, Cordy, talk about that. What what is his sort of reaction to people who criticize him uh, for working in China? Yeah, I think that's one of the most poignant moments in the documentary because he responds and says, "You know, it you you only." You're, he's only receiving criticism because he's a Chinese artist working for Chinese government. And he makes this comparison with international artists who work for their uh, governments for big events like the Olympics. So I think he mentions Damien Hirst and the project that he did. Right, for the London Olympics, right? Yeah. So, and and I think, you know, that particular moment is one that I always hope my students are paying attention to because there's so much criticism of the Chinese government in the uh, media in mm-hmm. the United States. And therefore, you know, students initially, I think, agree with that criticism. Like, yeah, why is he working for the government? You know, they see this as a bad thing, but I think you know, you really need to sit and, and think about this for a little bit. And, you know, I thought also Zhang Yimou uh, was the director that was also in the documentary. He says, Me bamfa, which means like, there's nothing we can do. There's mm-hmm. there's nothing we can do. Yeah, of course, we would love to have these freedoms that other people have, but we just don't. And so what do you expect us to do? You know, to reduce Chinese art as being responsible only for um, responding to, you know, current events or recent events in China, um, when, you know, in many ways, I think that these projects are are being shaped and influenced by uh, thousands of years of history and material culture. I think that it's, it's really a disservice to our own ability to, you know, understand and appreciate um, this rich culture, this, this, this history of artistic innovation. And I also think that China is often talked about within the context of, you know, issues of freedom of speech, of censorship, right? But if we're only thinking about Chinese art, looking at Chinese art, you know, within those contexts, you know, don't you think that that's also a form of censorship? Another thing I wanted to ask you about is I have never felt like I was disappointed in my television more than this documentary. I felt like you can't have a TV large enough to appreciate what you are looking at on the screen. It feels like you're trying to look at the Grand Canyon through a little window. Like the work is so much bigger than the TV that I have never felt so like seeing it on TV does not capture what the art actually is. I have seen the Mona Lisa in person and I've seen it on a computer screen. They don't look different to me. Like I don't have enough of an artistic eye to think seeing it in person, I can see something I could not see in a photograph. This guy's work, it did feel like um, seeing it on a screen was felt inferior. It, It felt like if you're not there experiencing it, you actually aren't really seeing what he's intending. Well, I think that you're getting into a really important point, which is scale and environment. Yes. Right? Like, which is something, again, you know, people who present art within exhibitionary contexts, like, that's what we're thinking about all the time. And so I think the Mona Lisa is a really good example because the Mona Lisa is like, what, like this big? Yeah. 
So, you know, and not only if you're at the Louvre, you see it in Paris, you're always so far back, you know, that it's really the difference between seeing it in person in a crowd full of people and seeing it on your computer screen. You know, the relationship to scale is not so different that you do think of it as a similar experience. But with these firework shows, the scale is so massive and environment in terms of where these fireworks are being ignited is also really important. You know, of course, within the context of Sky Ladder, um, Quanzhou his his hometown um you know is really significant right it's like this coming home this um this opportunity for him to realize this project that he's been working on since 1994 among you know his close family and friends his studio right allowing his grandmother to be able to watch it you know all of those things are are so important um i have seen one fireworks display in Chicago a few years ago. And it was, I, I, yeah, the, the, the film, uh, it absolutely does not do the fireworks display justice. We just did our podcast on the tomb of Lady Di, which is a second century BCE tomb. And she was buried in these three beautifully painted nesting coffins. And I've been to the museum in Hunan in Changsha, where all of her materials are now exhibited. And I didn't realize until I saw those painted coffins in person, how exquisite they are because the the lacquer paint is actually built up in certain areas so that you have these raised outlines Hmm. You know, that you you can you can never see in a photograph of that painting. So I think there are lots of those sorts of examples, even of things that you never would have imagined, like it would look so different in person. Yeah. And I think that's one of the reasons why Tsai's work is difficult to document and to understand if you don't experience it in person, because I think that the environment and, you know, the act of creating an explosion, that to me is the work. I think it's it's more about, you know, those moments of impermanence, thinking about the relationship between humans and nature. Like I see his work as very Taoist. I wore my Taoist you know, ring today to sort of belabor that point. So I think that he's interested in recognizing these impermanent relationships between ourselves and our natural environments and, you know, thinking about change and and process and the marks that he's making on the paper. As much as he's planning, there is still this really important element of spontaneity, I think, you know, things that that he sort of can't expect and happen based on this perfect combination of gunpowder, fire, and then what happens to the paper. Another point that I wanted to make earlier, too, based on what Ellen was talking about is, you know, looking at his work, you know, along with this, the Taoist aspect, I think that you know, it's so important to see the the family connections, right? That the Skyladder, for example, 
he tried this work four times on, you know, until he was finally successful. And the last time, you know, it, he only had family and friends. He didn't want it to be um, advertised that he was doing this project. Um, you know, he was doing it for his grandmother who was a hundred years old and, and died shortly after. And I was so moved by that, you know, when he sort of found his why. Why am I doing this Skyladder? Why am I trying so hard on this project? And he realized it's for his grandmother. He was successful. And I think a lot of his works are rooted in sort of the Taoist philosophy that he learned from his grandmother, right? She was a devout Taoist growing up and he spent a lot of time with her. Um, and you can see in the documentary how much he loves his grandmother. I, you know, I cry every time I watch the documentary because I was also close with my grandmother. It's so moving. Yeah. So, you know, he learned about Taoism from his grandmother. Um, his work is rooted in the local where he grew up. The, I mean, the use of gunpowder is based on where he grew up, right? Fireworks based on where he grew up, the fishing villages, all of that, right? So there's that real, even though he's such a big artist and he's an international artist, you can always see that local aspect. So, and the other reason, Ellen and Courtney, I wanted to have you on the podcast is because you both started a podcast called Of the Earth. And so I want you just to kind of talk a little bit about what inspired you to start a podcast and how it's going. We really started the podcast from many years of long conversations um, between Ellen and I about Chinese art. Um, you know, I think w one thing for both of us is you know, especially I, I feel this way at UWSP, um, you know, there isn't another uh, faculty member on campus that studies Chinese art or um, that specializes in Chinese history. And so I, I often feel like, oh, who can I talk to about this thing? You know, and um, Ellen and I, I think really connected because she went on to graduate school. I mean, she lived in China, did her master's degree in China. And so we were like our go-to people like, oh, you know, did you hear this about China? Because, you know, other people in our lives maybe <laughs> are like, oh, you're talking about China again. <laughs> Um, and so, you know, we were, we were talking on the phone. I think we were talking on the phone when we were like, this could be such a great podcast. We should, you know, start making a list of topics that we could talk about. Mm -hmm. And we talked about it for, I think, over a year before finally uh, the pandemic, we decided we, we've just have, we have to do this. Let's do it. What are the, some of the topics you've already talked about in the podcast? What's coming up? What can people look forward to? Yeah, so our first two episodes um, have a lot of overlap. The first episode uh, explores the temporalities of uh, a contemporary artist named Tolfe, particularly in relationship to uh, a recent exhibition that she staged in Beijing. And then uh, from that, we uh, branched out and had a discussion about a 2,000-year-old mummy named uh, Lady Di, who is especially beloved in all of Courtney's classes. So we were able to uh, think about the relationship between these two women who live 2,000 years apart uh, and the interesting connections between both of them. Uh, moving forward, we have lots of, of exciting topics. So we're thinking about 
utopia. What does utopia mean it, within a Chinese context, both past and present? We were also thinking about some kind of Silk Road episode, especially in relationship to the recent Belt and Road initiative uh, launched by China since 2014, 2015. And your podcast, there's like a video component as well. It's not just uh, audio. Well, we have so the 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 podcast itself. It's available anywhere you get your podcasts. But the the video component was an idea that we had to offer teasers or to sort of go behind the scenes. Um, you know, like as you can imagine, when you record a podcast. I mean, at least as the case for Courtney and me, we usually end up on the floor laughing at each other. <laughs> so we we include a few snippets, uh, family friendly snippets of sort of the the behind the scenes stuff that happens. The uh, outtakes. <laughs> yeah, the outtakes. <laughs> That's fantastic. Well, the the parts that I've listened to, I love your podcast. Um, I'm fascinated by it, Courtney. I, I've talked to students who have taken your classes. Uh, and uh, I've heard so many positive complimentary things from students whose minds were opened and eyes were open to what you teach. Ellen is an example of that, but I've talked to dozens of other students in my classes who've told me how much they enjoy taking your classes. Oh, thank you. Well, I think, you know, this is part of uh, another reason why we wanted to do this podcast is because, especially when you, you know, look at American media, it's all about Chinese government and Chinese government is bad. And so when, you know, I even see, for example, people on Facebook that I that I know, uh, posting anti China memes, and I, I feel like they don't really understand those anti China memes in the, you know, number one, but number two, I think there's also, you know, people aren't looking deep enough to really see that China is not just Chinese government. Mm -hmm. China is 5,000 years of human history. It's culture. It's about family, like we were talking about with Tsai's work, right? It's religion. It's philosophy. All things that we can learn from and appreciate just, you know, being part of the human family. And so I, I hope that people will tune in maybe to um, learn a little bit more about China. Courtney Chaffin and Ellen Larson, thank you so much for joining me to talk about Skyladder as well as Art in China and your podcast. Congratulations. It's been a fantastic conversation. I really enjoyed watching this documentary and it's been a pleasure to talk to you both. Thanks so much, Ani. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed my chat with Ellen Larson, a curator, designer, and writer, as well as a PhD candidate at the University of Pittsburgh, and Courtney Chaffin, a professor of Asian art history at the University of Wisconsin-Stevens Point. Please check out Ellen and Courtney's podcast on Chinese art, Of the Earth, which is available however you listen to podcasts. If you do check out Skyladder on Netflix, come to my Facebook page, No Cure for Curiosity. Let me know what you think of it. You can also drop me an email at nocureforcuriosity at outlook.com. Our snappy theme song was written by a UWSP music student, Derek Carden, and our logo was designed by artist and graphic designer Ryan Drymiller. Links to their work is available in the show notes to this episode. We'll be back in two weeks with a Halloween-inspired episode of No Cure for Curiosity. This podcast is brought to you by University College at University of Wisconsin-Stevens Point. Our mission is to provide coordinated, intentional, and inclusive services and opportunities through our core values of connecting, supporting, collaborating, and engaging.
Learn more about UW-Stevens Point and all our programs at uwsp.edu.